It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to a hey, it's not over yet. Our season is dead yet, Rico Bronia. As the New York Mets defeat the Miami Marlins after the home opener at City Field, they end up winning the game by a final score of nine to three. We'll go through the game. We'll go through being at City Field on opening day. And obviously the other big story that we as Met fans need to discuss, and that's the fact that Buck Showalter hates Francisco Alvarez. So we're not going to start there. Let's start with the good. The New York Mets won a baseball game, and that was necessary because in the first two innings of this game, I was not feeling great. You may have heard me because I did an update at 2 o'clock on WFAN for Rich Ackerman right before Craig went on, and it was not a very positive update. Because think about how this game starts. Just go through it in your mind. Tyler McGill is fine. Nothing negative to say about him. But Brandon Nimmo starts the game with a nine-pitch walk, and it feels like 2022 all over again. Brandon Nimmo has a long at-bat. Brandon Nimmo draws a walk. You even had Nimmo stealing a base. And he's one of those guys who I think is going to benefit from not only the new rule, but it seems like Brandon realizes, hey, maybe I should be more aggressive. He was not an aggressive base stealer a year ago. Maybe the success rates going up around baseball, the bags being bigger, maybe that's instilling confidence in Brandon Nimmo because, boy, if Brandon Nimmo can start stealing bases to go along with the fact that he gets on base 38, 39, dare I say 40% of the time, all of a sudden, he becomes one of the most dynamic leadoff hitters in baseball. So he starts the game off with a walk. He steals second base. There's a runner on second and one out against the immortal Edward Cabrera. And guess what? Much like the first two games against the Brewers, Francisco Lindor did nothing. Pete Alonso, nothing. And here's the topper. In the second inning against Cabrera, Remember, the same Edward Cabrera who walked six guys when he faced the Mets last weekend. He walks Jeff McNeil on four pitches. He walks Mark Canna on five pitches. You have two on and nobody out, but the part of the Met batting order that instills some fear into our hearts, not opponents, the bottom third comes up. Daniel Vogelback, Eduardo Escobar, and Tomas Nito. Vogelback strikes out. Eduardo Escobar strikes out and promptly, and you knew this was coming, here's his first booze of 2023. And let me give my fellow Met fan a little bit of credit about that. Eduardo Escobar was not booed during the introductions. Max Scherzer was not booed during the introductions. Nobody was booed during the introductions. We came into opening day wanting to cheer. No one goes to the ballpark looking to boo. But when Eduardo Escobar is striking out in his first at-bat back at City Field after a brutal road trip where he took an off day to get his swing figured out, the crowd was none too happy. And then a guy I feel bad for. Pete, I know you may not agree with me on this. I feel bad for Tomas Nito because it's not his fault he's starting. He's not the one deciding to stick his name in the lineup. That's Buck Showalter's fault. So when Nito comes up with first and second, two outs, after Vogelback did nothing and Eduardo Escobar did nothing, we all knew Tomas Nito was going to do nothing. And I even said to my dad sitting next to me, I said, let me tell you something. I don't want anybody booing Tomas Nito because Tomas Nito is what he is. 
Like, we're not confused by him as an offensive player. Eduardo Escobar is a little bit different. We have higher expectations for the bat of Eduardo Escobar. He's making a bunch of money. He had a big September last year. Tomas Nito, though, I feel bad for him because Buck Showalter, and we'll rip his ass coming up in a little bit, is actually trying to make us all hate Tomas Nito. So, Pete, make me a promise. You're not going to hate on Tomas Nito, okay? It's not, like you said, it's not Nito's fault. I will hate a lot of other things, but Tomas Nito has done nothing wrong. And to be honest with you, he got a nice base hit today. He did. Uh, he, did. <laughs> he didn't do it with bases loaded two outs. He did it with, you know, leading off an inning. But still, you're right. You're right. But when he grounds out and the Mets now start this game 0 for 5 with runners in scoring position, I got a headache. I got, I got to be honest with you. And I got a headache because now I'm in a bad mood for three different reasons as I sat there right around 2.05 Eastern time for Mets home opener. And let's go through the three reasons why I was annoyed and maybe a lot of people listening were annoyed. Number one, we are freezing our asses off, okay? The game time temperature was 56 degrees and there was a constant wind throughout the ballpark. Obviously, certain sections are going to get the wind a little bit less than others. So maybe you were at the ball at the ball game on today or whenever you're listening. Maybe yesterday. We're recording this right after the game. I just got home, so recording Friday. Maybe you didn't get the wind. I got the wind, and I'm freezing my ass off. And I got these electrical hand warmers that I brought to the ballpark, and it ain't helping. And all I could think about was the fact that yesterday it was 80 degrees we could have had opening day in 80 degree weather but because the bullpen was ravaged and because there was like a slight chance of rain at five o'clock the the brainiacs at major league baseball and the new york mets and i get why the mets did it they wanted an off day okay fine they said let's not play a game meanwhile it's overcast it's cold it's windy. It was not a very comfortable day. Now, you combine that with the fact that Buck Showalter hates Francisco Alvarez, basically thinks he's a useless piece of crap. Then you combine that with the fact that the Met offense is doing everything it can to inflict pain on us. It was a very bad first hour of opening day. And then think about the third inning. Right Now, Tyler McGill's pitching great. I don't want to leave him out. We'll get to him a little bit later on on what he did. But third inning, 0-0, and again, Edward Cabrera can't throw strikes. He walks Brandon Nimmo. He walks Starling Marte. He walks Francisco Lindor. He walks the bases loaded and threw three strikes. So think about that. He throws 15 pitches. 12 of them are out of the strike zone. The Mets have the bases loaded, nobody out, with Pete Alonso coming up. And even I, as negative as I was feeling in the moment, I'm thinking, all right, this is it. I mean, finally, the Mets are going to break through and they're going to score runs. <laughs> Pete Alonso strikes out looking. Jeff McNeil strikes out looking. Now I turn to my dad and I'm like, are you effing kidding me? They have the bases loaded and nobody out against the guy who has now walked six guys in two plus innings. He's walked six guys. He walked six guys in his last start against the Mets. You've got your best hitters coming up and you've got nothing. And then you just point to the sky and you thank the baseball gods because the way the Mets scratched out these two runs was just the luck of the Irish. 
Mark Canna draws a walk. It was a good at-bat, so I give Canna credit for that. Then they take Edward Cabrera out the game. For some reason, I don't understand this with Skip Schumacher. He goes to a righty in Brazabon when he's got five lefties in his bullpen. Five of them. Vogelback can't hit lefties. And if the Mets pinch hit, they're taking Vogelback out the game in the third inning. I thought that was bad managing by Skip Schumacher. That's just my opinion. I'm not complaining. I'm happy about it. But that didn't make sense to me. Again, you have five lefties in your bullpen. Vogelback is like a 140 hitter against lefties. And even if Buck makes the move and says, fine, let's play checkers or chess, you've just eliminated Vogelback from the game in the third inning. So I thought that was a weird move. And Daniel Vogelback hits a ground ball to first base. And for some reason, Brazabon starts running to cover first and then stops. And you could see this happening. All of a sudden, nobody's at first base. And Daniel Vogelbach beats it out for an infield hit, run number two, two nothing Mets. You could not design a cheaper way for the Mets to score two runs than the way they scored those two runs in the third inning. Not complaining, just saying. And then, of course, Eduardo Escobar grounds out with the bases loaded. And here's louder booze. So it went from booze to louder booze. I personally am not a booer, but I'm not going to sit here and reprimand people for booing. I get upset when people get undeserved booze. So years ago, when the Mets traded for Piazza, Mike Piazza would hear booze in his first few months as a Met. And it would drive me nuts because Piazza was hitting like 330, 340. But he wasn't getting enough big hits. And I guess the expectations for a guy that was just acquired was he can't make outs. And I got annoyed about that. And I would actually argue with people in the stands about why they were booing Mike Piazza. I'm not arguing with anybody who's booing Eduardo Escobar. How could I? The guy is sitting under 100. He's leaving worlds on base. I mean, think about it. After he grounded out in the third inning, He had left just on his own five guys on base through two innings. But either way, the Mets gave Tyler McGill a lead, and McGill was outstanding in this game. He really was. Let me give him a little bit of love before we get back to the offense. Gets the first two guys out in the first inning, gets through some trouble. Gets the first two guys out in the second inning, gets through some trouble. Gives up a double to a rise with one out. So that was a tricky spot with Soler and Cooper coming up. Gets through that. And then maybe the most impressive part, with two outs and nobody on in the fourth inning, Gene Segura, who's a Met killer, and I thought he was going to become another version of a Met killer because he hits that line drive off of McGill. And McGill crashes down to the ground. I don't know about you, Pete. I thought he was dead for a second. Oh, I yeah. Was I was concerned we weren't going to see him, that that was going to be it for him. Yeah, he's pitching a great game, and all I thought was, I think we've actually ran out of pitchers for the season. (laughs) I know, I know. And again, I'm thinking about the game, and then I'm thinking, oh yeah, so after the game is over, is it Joey Lucchese? Like, who the hell is it? But McGill pops up, throws a couple of warm-up pitches, and even though he's staying in the game, there's still a level of concern. Is he going to get through this inning, and is whatever is bothering him, because I, I still don't know what hit him. I assume it was his knee, but maybe you saw it on TV. It was his leg, his foot, whatever the hell it was. I don't know. That maybe it stiffens up. So just because he's staying in the game doesn't necessarily mean we're out of the woods. He gets Jesus Sanchez to pop up. He gets a big double play ball in the fifth inning, pitches a one 2 three, sixth inning. Just a brilliant performance by Tyler McGill. 
His last performance was about battling. This was just Tyler being great. Six innings, 88 pitches, one pitch clock violation that turned out not to matter because right after the pitch clock violation, I think is when he struck out Jazz Chisholm, his final pitch of the game. So he didn't even let it bother him. It was almost like, because Tyler McGill's Mr. Cool. It was almost like with a 2-2 count, he said, eh, I'm good. I'll take a violation. I'm all right. We'll get, we'll give him ball three. Let me take a deep breath. Let me take a rest and I'll strike his ass out anyway. And that's what he did. Now, quick thing about Jazz Chisholm, because this drove me nuts. I don't understand this. Jazz Chisholm is at the plate in the first inning. The Marlins have a base runner because Garrett Cooper blooped the base hit to right. So Jazz Chisholm's up, runner on first, two outs, and he shows bunt. Okay. I mean, I understand showing bunt. Eduardo Escobar was shading him farther over. He was playing really deep. Jazz gets a bunt down. It's an easy base hit. I'm not even one to argue he's the cleanup hitter. He's paid the drive-in runs. No, if if they've given him a base hit, go take the base hit. Two on, two out for Avisal Garcia. That's fine. I got no problem with that. Shows the bunt on the second pitch. Shows the bunt on the third pitch. Here's what just boggled my mind. That count was three and one. And he showed bunt again. What is what that? You're in a batter's count. It's three and one. There's a good chance you're going to get a cookie and you're showing bunt. I just, I didn't understand that at all. It was called a strike. And then on three, two, he flies out to left field. So he didn't give himself a chance to drive the ball, maybe rip a two run home run like he did against DeGrom three years ago. I remember that in April, Jake hit a, uh, gave up a bomb to Jazz Chisholm. I'm not sure if that was his first major league home run, but it was, it was early in his career. It was 2021 when Jake was pitching and he's showing bunt made no sense, but great performance by Tyler McGill. I would say Pete, we are now eight games into the season. Best starting pitching performance we've seen from any Mets starter occurred on opening day at city by Tyler McGill. And this is back to back years with him again, Tyler McGill getting the home opener and being a stud. And I think there's a stat um, that only him and Tom Seaver Mets history have done, uh, have pitched six innings of scoreless baseball in home opener, back-to-back years. A season opener and then a home opener. That's incredible. That's, uh, that is that is incredible. Good for him. Good for him, man, because this is a guy who entered the, the spring probably seventh on the depth chart, but because of two injuries, Quintana and Verlander, he's taken advantage of it, and this is a good problem to have because Verlander said before the game he expects to be back soon. Tyler McGill is pitching in a way in which he'll remain in the rotation. And that's great. That's fantastic. Whether that's six-man, whether that's David Peterson going down, whether that's creating a fake injury for Carlos Carrasco or real injury for Carlos Carrasco. Uh, I never worry about this. I'm just saying that Tyler McGill's pitching well enough where if he can continue this, he stays in the rotation. And I had no problem with Buck taking him out either. I think I've learned over the years that even though McGill had retired his last five, his pitch count was 88, he just had a 1-2-3 inning, you're almost better with certain guys taking him out too early than too late. And I think if this was me two years ago, I would have probably said, 88 pitches, keep him in the game. But I think that it probably made sense to get him out. And Adam Adovino had a great bounce-back performance too because when he comes into this game, 
in the seventh inning. It is 4-0. They added some runs. Starling Marte hit that home run in the sixth inning, which was nice to see. Pete Alonso came through with an RBI single. So they started tacking on besides those two cheap runs that they scored in the third inning. Adamadovino comes in, and it was great. Gets a couple of strikeouts, pitches a 1-2-3 inning. And we did see the Met offense start to show you something. You mentioned Nito getting the leadoff hit in the fourth. It did start a rally. Brandon Nimmo drew a walk. He had four walks in this game. And Pete Alonso bailed out Lindor because Lindor struck out with a couple of guys on base. And Pete comes through with an RBI single as the Mets tacked on another run. I, I did not understand in the seventh when, again, the Mets are gifted the bases loaded and nobody out because of a walk, a hit batsman, and another walk. I didn't understand what Escobar was doing on the bases because Tomas Nito comes up and drives a ball to left field for a sacrifice fly, which is great. Mark Canna is going to very easily score. Escobar is on first, and he tries to tag to go to second. And it was clear as day that Canna scored first, but it was it was close enough to make you say, Eduardo, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, if Escobar's tagged out, because he tries to tag from first to second, he gets thrown out. Jesus Sanchez knew exactly where to throw the baseball, right to second base. You're not getting Canna at the plate. But that was a beat off from Escobar running the Mets out of a run. So I, he is just off to a brutal start. He was over for today. He did have that ground out that drove a run in, the fielder's choice with the bases loaded. But then you've got the base running call that to me is, is very questionable. Because the risk-reward is not there. It's just not. You had a chance to completely run yourself out of an inning. And they're going to be facing some tough choices here with Eduardo because you want to be patient, and I want to be patient. We're eight games into this season, and so you want to pause and continue to run guys out there. You know, Eduardo has a five-hit day or a three-hit day tomorrow. His batting average gets raised by 200 points. I understand that. But I think what concerns me is that we saw this last year. And this is not only a continuation from spring training where he wasn't hitting, but he's also doing kind of dopey things like almost running the Mets out of an inning. And his defense was fine today, so I don't want to pick on his defense, but he's not going to confuse you with Brooks Robinson by any stretch. So you got two options here. Obviously, Luis Guillerme is on this roster, and up until today, Luis has been getting those starts against right-handed pitching. And then it goes back to the Brett Beatty question. But the problem with Brett Beatty is the problem with Buck Showalter. So let's address it. Let's address Buck Showalter, who I love Buck Showalter. He had a great year last year. We'll put aside some of the questionable moves he made on this opening road trip. As a manager, everybody makes questionable moves. So while I disagree with them, and I didn't think he had his greatest couple of days, it is what it is. Let's get to this Alvarez thing. When the Mets decide to call up Alvarez... Because Omar Narvaez is now going to be out for eight to nine weeks, which is brutal. I feel bad for him. I think he's a good player, a productive player. And it sucks that the Mets are going to be without him for two and a half months. But when you make the decision to call up Francisco Alvarez, to me, that means you're bringing him up to play. You're not bringing him up to just learn from Tomas Nito. You're not bringing him up to sit on the bench. You're bringing him up to play. So Buck Showalter and Billy Epler should, I don't know, have a freaking conversation. Because I doubt 
if Billy Epler has a half a brain, considering he's so obsessed with Brett Beatty getting playing time in AAA. Yeah, he's got to play more games in AAA. It's not fair to him for him to not. Then you got to explain to me why the hell you'd call up Alvarez to not play him. Now, I would normally say it's one game, it's opening day. Maybe they just wanted to give it to Tomas Nito. Maybe Buck thought Nito deserves that honor of playing the home opener. But you listen to Buck talk about Alvarez. First of all, I don't know what to make of it, but it doesn't sound like a guy who's committing to playing him all the time. And he gave some cockamamie answer about, well, you know, they got the balance of winning and developing. Well, hold on a second. Winning and developing. Are you telling me Alvarez doesn't give you a better chance to win? Because if that's what you're saying, then you're also telling us this. You're telling us Alvarez has no effing idea what he's doing behind the plate. Is that what you're telling us? Because I'll admit this. I think Pete would admit this. As much as we want him to play, we don't know what he's like calling a game. None of us would. But your actions, if you're not going to play him, would tell me that you think he's a schmuck behind the plate. And if that's what you think, either stick him in AAA where he can learn and play or give up on him being a catcher and make him a DH. But to have him up here and not play is lunacy. And I'll give you another example of something that pissed me off. While in general, if you don't have three catchers, it's going to be difficult to use Alvarez as a pinch hitter or as a DH unless he's pinch hitting for Nito because you don't have that third catcher, so it puts you in a precarious spot. I thought in the seventh inning of this game, with the Mets having a pretty comfortable lead at this moment. At the moment, it's 4 nothing. It's the bottom of the seventh inning. They got a couple of guys on base. I feel good like I can get away with Alvarez pinch hitting, staying in the game as the DH. And if, God forbid, something happens to Nito, not the end of the world. Alvarez catches. And yeah, we got the pitcher spot. But the odds are this game's over. You have the bases loaded. I'm sorry. First and second, nobody out. And Daniel Vogelback coming up. And the Marlins have a lefty on the mound and Tanner Scott. This isn't about the game. This is about Alvarez. Would that not be a pretty cool spot to give this kid the at-bat? Opening day, big crowd, two on, nobody out against the lefty. That seems like a great spot. And instead, he sends up Tommy Pham. And I, I don't want to kill Tommy Pham. I got nothing against Tommy Pham. He's off to a fine start and he drew a walk in this at-bat. But are you going to play this kid ever? Are you going to use this kid for anything ever? Because if your plan is to not play him, why the hell is he here? Then you call up Michael Perez and make him the backup like you did last year. That's what you did last year, remember? When James McCann had his injuries, we saw Perez, we saw Mazika, and Nito was pretty much the everyday catcher. And here's the thing about Nito. He's fine defensively. I like Tomas Nito. But this kid's your future. He's the number three prospect in baseball. And it's April. That's the other thing. It's effing April. If there's ever a time for him to learn, wouldn't it be now? You've got two guys in the rotation in David Peterson and Tyler McGill who are young guys. You don't have to worry about the the cruddy veteran who doesn't want to throw to him. Why the hell is he not playing? Now, it's one game, so I don't want to freak out about the game. I'm more freaking out about Buck's comments 
I mean, am I nuts, Pete? It sounded like Buck Showalter hates Alvarez, has no interest in playing him. So the one thing I will say about Buck is he also said that Darren Ruff was batting 600 in the backfields, and then he got cut not too long after. So I don't know if if Buck is trying to play a game, if it's opening day that they, you know, home opener that they wanted to put him in a less, you know, pressured situation. Because here's the thing is they brought him up with six games to go last year, six games to freaking go. They brought up Francisco Alvarez, which was the worst freaking time to do it. You talk about pressure situation. Hey, save the day for us. We need a big hit. Please do something. So now's the time. Okay, fine. It's a home opener. Maybe you think the spot's too big. You told, you promised Nito that he'd catch McGill, whatever the case is. But, it's it's time. Like if if the next couple days go by and Francisco Alvarez is still sitting the bench, then this is just a screwy situation, and we're wasting our time with calling a Francisco Alvarez. And you're right. It, it, this is there is no big situation anymore. It's it. This is the time for him to shine. Let's see what we got in him and whatever. If you give him a two two months or even two weeks, and he's not hitting, then bring him back down. Bring up Michael Perez. But you cannot have him ride the bench for any amount of time. He's got to play at least sixty to seventy percent of the games. I don't even think it's about his bat. Like, his bat's his bat. Uh, would it surprise me if he got off to a tough start? No, I mean, he's a young player. Anthony Volpe's not off to the greatest offensive start. It's not the end of the world. I think with him, it's more about defense and learning how to catch and learning how to communicate with pitchers and learning how to just do that job effectively. And I understand it's not easy, but is he a catcher or is he not a catcher? You know, the Mets have to make a decision at some point. And right now is the time to learn. Because I'm not panicking as a Met fan. I'm not panicking about three and four. I'm not panicking about four and four. You have time. We live in a world now in which if you can get to 88 wins, you're probably in the postseason. I'm not saying that these games don't matter, but I am saying that if there's a time to let your young players develop, it's now. And we're learning about Billy Epler and we're relearning about Buck Showalter because they don't have long track records here. So far, Billy Epler has inherited, and I make that clear, He's inherited these guys. He's inherited some really good prospects. He really has. I mean, when you look at the top end of this farm system and the guys that are at Syracuse right now and the guys that are knocking on the door, the Mets have legitimate prospects between Alvarez and Beatty and Mauricio and even Alex Ramirez, who we talk less about. They got guys. And so far between last year and so far this year, Billy Epler's handling of young players makes zero sense. Zero sense. It took forever to call up Beatty last year. He did. He got hurt. It sucked. It took forever to call up Vientos. You mentioned it, Pete. He calls up Alvarez before the biggest series of the year. Then this year, Brett Beatty goes out and wins the job if there was any kind of competition. Clearly there wasn't. You stick his ass in AAA. Vientos proves, at least to a degree, hey, maybe he's the best right-handed option at DH for this team. You send his ass down to AAA, and then you top it off, before we get to Alvarez, with Ronnie Mauricio, who's tearing the cover off the ball, and you keep him at shortstop? As if, what? When's he playing shortstop here? And now this with Alvarez. Now, it's one game, so you're right, Pete. Could Alvarez start Saturday and Sunday? He could. And I hope he does. We'll do our series recap pod, and I'll start it off by golf clapping for Buck Showalter, saying, great, he head faked the crap out of me, and I hope he is. Look, Buck's not the most honest guy. He's not going to tell us everything. 
So all I can base this on is the game that we just had and trying to read Buck's comments. And the read early on is, oh my God, he's not going to play a lot. But let's put numbers to this. The Mets have two games left in this series against the Marlins. They've got three games with the Padres. There's one day game after night game, Wednesday afternoon. So obviously, whoever starts Tuesday, the other guy starts Wednesday. With five games to go on this homestand, how many of those games will Francisco Alvarez start? You're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. He's got to start at least half. What does that mean? Three out of five? Because there's a big difference between three and two. He, well, okay, well, he needs, okay, so he needs to get three starts. He needs to get three starts. He won't. If I had to predict right now, and I, and I hope I'm wrong, here's how I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to lay, I'm going to give you the specific games, all right? I think that Nito starts Saturday with Sanga on the mound under the guise of, well, you know, Sanga's a new country. It's only a second start. He's already worked with Nito. Perfect, right? I think he goes Nito Saturday. I think he goes Alvarez Sunday. He's not going to start Nito every game of this series. Then I think he's going to go Nito Monday, Alvarez Tuesday, Nito Wednesday. So I think Nito will start three of the next five games. Alvarez will start two of them. And I got a big freaking issue with that. I think Alvarez should start four out of five games. I see no reason why he shouldn't start Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Okay, fine. Day game after night game, you start Needle. No problem. That, that's what I would do because Alvarez should be treated like he's the starting catcher. He should catch everybody. There should be nobody he's not catching because this is the time to learn. Because what if, what if he hits the freaking cover off the ball? What if? What if he's so good offensively that you want to play him all the time and you don't want to DH him, you want to catch him? Well, then he better learn how to catch Max Scherzer now. He better learn how to catch Kodai Senga now. It just scares me that the Mets have this kind of hesitation about him because they must think he's awful behind the plate. I mean, they must think he's a disaster. And if that's the case, then what are we doing? Right. And here's the other thing, too. Like you just said that you were going through this, that you'd, you'd start him Sunday and Tuesday. Meanwhile, tomorrow... They're facing Trevor Rogers, who is a left-handed pitcher. Like, that's the optimal time to get him in the lineup. Yeah, but the problem is, Nito's better against lefties than righties, too. <laughs> Think about Nito. Yeah, but we're talking about two different types of hitters here. We're talking about a guy who's a, hey, you make contact with more left against lefties. Great. That's awesome. Alvarez will be bring power to the lineup, which we're begging for. No, no, I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way. And I also think, and I mentioned this before, Pete, wouldn't today have been a good day to get him in the lineup? Like, or not in the lineup, I'm sorry, to pinch hit. Like, I laid out the situation. Two on nobody out seventh inning. Vogelbach's clearly getting pinch hit for with a right-handed batter. When I saw Tommy Pham pop out of that dugout, I was annoyed. Because it was like, what? This is the easiest spot for him. Two yeah. on nobody out. He should get a cookie to hit. Yeah, but you know what? You you nailed this before when you talked about the fact that unless they're bringing up Michael Perez to have a third catcher, it's really difficult to say we're going to put Alvarez in the spot and, you know, God forbid, you know, Nido gets hurt. What are they going to do? Yeah, it's, 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 but it's the late in the game that you're in, that you have a big lead in. You know, like my fear of using Alvarez at DH 
is that either you can't pinch it for Tomas Nito at all, because if you do, you're willingly moving Alvarez to catcher. Or if you do, you're losing the DH. You know what I mean? Like, that's why you look at Cincinnati. They're the best example I could think of. The Reds catcher is Tyler Stevenson. Hell of a ball player. They play him every day. He catches most days, and then sometimes he'll DH. But they carry three catchers. They protect themselves against the possibility that if you're using Stevenson at DH, that you can't pinch it for your catcher. Like, if Alvarez is DHing against the tough lefty and you're starting Tomas Nito, you're either married to Nito getting every freaking at-bat or you understand that late in the game, you're going to lose the DH. That's why during the offseason when we talked about this, I was always a proponent of they're going to have to find a way to carry three catchers if Alvarez is going to be on this team and you want to use him at the DH spot. But they're, you know what? They're not, here's the funny thing, Pete. They're never going to use him at DH. They're not. They're going to use Tommy Pham at DH or what we saw on the first uh, road trip where Pham plays left field and Canada DH. It's basically, Tommy Pham is going to be the bat that gets in the lineup. They're not going to do that with Francisco Alvarez. And that's, I don't want this to bring everybody down because you're right about one thing, Pete, before that I should take notice in. Buck may just be BSing us. That Buck Showalter may not just be his initials. It may be BS, as in, (laughs) I'm really not telling you what I'm doing with Francisco Alvarez. I'll get all you guys pissed off, and then on Saturday, you'll be happy, and you'll kiss my ring. The ring I don't have, the ring I hope to get you. (laughs) Well, not for nothing, but I will say this, to to defend Buck a little bit, because you've, you've been a little bit more critical about him recently, and that rightfully so. The one thing Buck Showalter has done very well is he has taken the brunt of, there hasn't been much criticism, but he's deflected and made it about him and put people, if there's going to be criticism, it's about him and off the players. If you recall, what did he tell Francisco Lindor last year before the season started? You just go out there and do your thing. I'll take care of everything else. And he has, for the most part. There you go. All right. Well, we are going to kill him. If Alvarez is in the lineup, we're going to rip him. That's for sure. Uh, As far as opening day was concerned, the first thing I noticed when I came through the tunnel to go to my seat was the just enormity of that screen. I mean, that screen is, it's enormous. I'm sure it looks enormous on TV, but when you're there, it just jumps out at you immediately. And it's beautiful. It's great. I thought they used it really well today. Whenever they did replays and they would show, you know, here's Pete Alonso's RBI single. Here's Starling Marte's home runs. Here's the back-to-back home runs they hit in the eighth, which I don't want to forget about with Lindor and Alonso. It was so good. And I was saying to my dad, I've never considered going to a stadium to watch something on the big screen. And sometimes you run promotions like that where you say, hey, we're going to show a baseball movie. Hey, we're going to show the All-Star game. But if the Mets made the playoffs this year, you know, the real playoffs, and they were playing a game three at Dodger stadium. And they invited people to watch the game at city field. Dude, I think I'd go. I think the screen is so badass and so good that not only would it be awesome because the atmosphere would be great. It'd be like going to a game, but I think it would actually be kind of fun. And you'd see the game incredibly well because that screen is ginormous. So I think that's the biggest compliment I could give it. I would I would never have considered going to a ballpark to watch a TV screen, but I think it's it's that great. It's got good information, a lot of information. They had the lineups of both teams up there. They had the line score. They had useless stats. It was great. I like that. They made some other scoreboard changes I'm not going to bore you with. 
Uh, you know what? I will bore you with it. Sirico Bronia. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Come on. That's what we're here for. Um, in left field, they used to have the out-of-town scoreboard, and it would be too big because uh, they would try to give so much information about each game that they would have to flash the scores. They wouldn't be able to keep every score on the screen at the same time. They have fixed that. They give you less information, but every score remains on the screen, which I think is a good thing. So I'm a big fan of that. The other thing I'm a huge fan of, and it's it bothers me that it took this long, is that today, before first pitch, they had the Murphy family, the daughters and son of the great Bob Murphy, throw out the first pitch to honor the fact that they put a sign up right next to Ralph Kiner, right next to the retired numbers in left field, honoring Bob Murphy. And this has bothered me for years because what I never understood, and I love Ralph Kiner, this is not a knock on Ralph, was why there was a microphone out there to honor Ralph and not Bob Murphy. They were both broadcasters from the beginning, 1962. Uh, Murphy retired in 2003. I think it was 2003. It makes sense why they're doing it now. It's 20 years. But Bob Murphy's the voice of the New York Mets. He's the voice of my childhood. He's the voice of your childhood. I think if you are over the age of 30-ish, 35-ish maybe, you certainly grew up with the voice of Bob Murphy. Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Murphy. That's my imitation of him. We'll be back with a happy recap. Buckle your seatbelts. We go to the ninth. That's not my best imitation. Here's my best imitation. Well, hey, everybody. This is Bob Murphy. Puffy cumulus clouds are high. <laughs> okay, it's terrible. What can I tell you? Listen, I've heard you nail it. That was not your best. This is, <laughs> it's been a long day. You had to travel back from the game, so I'll give you a pass. But the point is there is that Bob Murphy definitely needs – it's about time we did something for Bob Murphy. You're 100% right. Everyone – Bob Murphy, Ralph Kiner – Two of the all-time greats as far as broadcasting uh, on the mic for the Mets. 100%. I don't know why they didn't put it up to begin with. I think they put up Ralph's mic immediately upon uh, his retirement on his unfortunate death, I think, in 2013, 2014, right around there. Bob Murphy, he retired in 03. They never put it up there. They never put it up there. And when Bob Murphy retired, they had a ceremony for him. There was about 900 people in the building because it was late 03. The team sucked. No one wanted to go. And Murphy was getting congratulated in front of friends and family. So I'm glad that they did that. I'm glad that it's up there. It's up there with all the other retired numbers. And by the way, speaking of retired numbers, I do have to address something that came up on Carton and Roberts. I had made an, I forget where it started. Maybe the whole Joe Namath uh, is willing to give up 12 to Aaron Rodgers. And by the way, let me point it out that Joe Namath made that comment with Tiki and Tyranny. So your show deserves credit for that. That's where Joe yeah, made and, it. Yeah, and by the way, unsolicited. Like it unsolicited. Ha- happened out of nowhere. We were talking about uh, putting on a, for, for Brandon Tierney to put on Tiki Barber's jersey and to turn it to, oh, by the way, you know, I'd love to see Aaron Rodgers be a Jet, and I would definitely unretire my number for that. That was the craziest part, Pete. Not a knock on Tiki or Brandon. You guys probably would have asked it at some point. It wasn't even asked. It was literally, I'm bringing this up on my own. Hey, take number 12. <laughs> so I've mentioned that I don't think Aaron Rodgers should take number 12. Like, I think that would be a big mistake. So I made an offhanded comment to Craig about, hey, do you think that Keith Hernandez would be willing to take 17 off the wall Show Shohei Otani? And for some reason, Craig's like, that's a brilliant question. 
Baseball Night in New York should cover that for an entire half hour on SNY. And I'm like, okay, maybe you're mocking the question. Maybe that's what you're doing. But he, he actually found it fascinating. So he talked me into putting a poll up on my Twitter asking, hey, Met fans, would you be willing to take 17 off the wall and give it to Shohei Otani? And I want to make something clear. While I wasn't the biggest proponent of retiring more numbers, and that's not a knock on Keith, it's just in general, that's always been my view about retired numbers. The thought of taking a retired number off the wall and handing it to anybody, I don't give a crap who it is, is insane. I think it's so disrespectful on every level. So I'm against it. 9,200 people voted. When I put up the question, Met fans, would you be willing to take 17 off the wall and give it to Shohei Otani? And 53% said yes. It wasn't a blowout, but 53-47 said, yeah, take it off the wall and give it to Otani. What happened to you people? I could tell you what happened. It's barely been up there. It's been up there for like a couple days, it feels like. So it's like if it was there for 20, 30 years, I think other people would sit there and be like, you know what? Uh, I'm not so sure. If someone, let me put it this way. If it was Seaver's number he was looking for, I, I think there'd be a lot, much more of a debate and hesitation. They just put it up there last week. So I I, I, I totally was one of the people on board saying, yeah, give it to Otani. We'll, we'll, Keith will get his day again soon anyway. I think that makes it worse because <laughs> I'll tell you why I think it makes it worse because – Unfortunately, Tom Seaver isn't with us, but he got to enjoy 41 being up there for a very long time. Mike Piazza's had 31 up there for a decent amount of time. Hasn't you know been five minutes, but a decent amount of time. You just gave the man this incredible honor that meant a lot to him. And five minutes later, you're going to say, yeah, screw that. We're going to take that off the wall and give it to Otani. <laughs> oh, that'd be incredible. And, and by the way, if anyone ever asked Keith, if Keith is not lying, and I don't think he would, he would say no. He'd say, are you kidding me? You want me to take that number that you finally put up on that wall and take it off? So it has nothing to do with Otani. Otani's not a bad player. It's not like he's not worthy of it. I wouldn't give it to anybody. I don't care if freaking Babe Ruth walked through that door. I'm not just going to give him a number. Obviously, he would want number three, and Tomas Nito would gladly give it up. (laughs) <laughs> he would gladly give it away. Anyhow, I thought that was crazy. But good win for the Mets. They're 4-4. Four and four. Uh, Hopefully that relaxes some people. And now they got to go win this series. That's the bottom line. Go win this series against Miami. Go win this series against San Diego. Try to get some revenge on them, even though it's not really revenge, because nothing will make up for losing a playoff series to them, unless you beat them in a playoff series. But it's an important five games. Not a capital I important, like a little I important only because they do have a very long road trip coming up. In fact, it's the longest road trip of the season. The longest trip of the year will take place after they're done with this homestand. Three in Oakland, three in LA, four in San Francisco. So a 10-game road trip on the West Coast against a bad team, a really good team, and a team we're still trying to figure out. So we'll see. Senga with a city field debut on Saturday and Carlos Carrasco looking to bounce back on Sunday. But I hope everybody enjoyed opening day. It was a festive day. It was a cold day. And like most days in our lifetime that involve a home opener, the New York Mets won. It's uncanny, but we actually went on opening day all the freaking time. You could shoot the show, the pod, and email anytime. The Rico B at gmail.com. 
thericob at gmail.com. We will be back after this series is over at some point on Sunday evening. There'll be a brand new Rico guaranteed to be in your podcast download area Monday morning, but check for it late Sunday night or some point Sunday night after this series wraps up against Miami. We appreciate you listening to Rico Brony. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>